0: And welcome to the podcast, Are You Kidding Me? I am Naomi Schaefer Riley.
1: And I'm Ian Rowe.
0: And I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Ian is a visiting fellow there. And we are bringing to you a podcast about various issues related to the well-being and welfare of children in America today. We're going to talk about everything on this podcast from the child welfare system, some education stuff, adoption, foster care, family court, you name it. But first, we'd like to tell you a little bit about ourselves. So I'm going to let Ian go first.
1: Oh, thanks, Naomi. Great to be here. Yeah, we're going to be talking about, you know, systems that are designed to help children, but oftentimes because of adult agendas, actually don't do the best for kids. And, and I have, you know, throughout my life been involved with many of these systems that are designed to help children and have seen it work and not work so well. So, you know, child of uh, Jamaican immigrant parents, we came to this country to pursue the American dream. I was in, you know, all of my schooling was New York City public schools. So I went to Brooklyn Tech, go engineers you know, involved with Teach for America in the early days, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, worked at the White House. And currently, I run a network of public charter schools that serve about 2,000 kids in the heart of the Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So we're fighting every day to serve kids extremely well. And I'm also the chairman of the board of Spence Chapin, which is one of the oldest adoption agencies in the country. So through lots of different prisms. I look at ways in which systems are trying to serve kids and often been frustrated at how adult agendas get in the way.
0: Well, I'm excited that you've made time for us in the course of all of your activities. I am amazed at at how much you do. So I have a more narrow job description, I guess, a little bit. I'm a journalist by training. I've worked at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. And now I'm full time at AEI doing uh, child welfare. I also write occasionally about education and marriage and other cultural issues. But I actually first became interested in child welfare issues just living in New York. We were just talking before about uh, broken windows theory, and I was living in New York. I moved here in the late 90s, and I was living here in the early 2000s, and sort of during this heady time when New York seemed to be experiencing this amazing transformation. Crime was so far down, and, you know, a lot of that was because these, these revolutionary ideas that were coming out of conservative circles mostly. And these policies, not that you'd know it now to listen to the conversation, greatly benefited the most vulnerable members of our society and certainly of New York City. Despite and,
1: opposition sometimes from leaders in those same oh, communities. Oh, ab-
0: absolutely. But I actually wondered at the time, and I literally remember asking this question to some of my favorite policy wonks at the time, what is the broken windows theory of child welfare? Because I really wanted to know what it was that was going to revolutionize child welfare You know, back then. One of the, the, the earliest cases I remember actually was in 2006 of Nick's Mari Brown, who was a seven-year-old who was beaten to death by her stepfather. But I was following it before then. And um, I guess since then, I've, I've continued to have a great interest in child welfare issues and foster care. I've covered religious communities a lot in my writing. And I've been very impressed over the last few years of the way that they have stepped up in the area of, of foster care and adoption. And so those are you know some of the issues that I hope that we get to talk about in these podcasts you know, over the next few episodes.
1: Very exciting.
0: So I'm, I'm hoping that the experience that you bring to this and the journalism that I've been doing will uh, will have some, some effect.
1: Yeah, and I think we'll be able to tell positive stories because so often we are frustrated by seeing system design for children that are adult-centered, and we are going to try to focus on those successes when systems are actually child-centered.
0: I think... We wanted to start today by talking about this interesting blog post that we saw about absenteeism by kids who are in foster care. Maybe this doesn't surprise people. Obviously, foster kids are are always in kind of unstable situation. Maybe it's not surprising to people that they're missing school. But this article raised some interesting questions, and I wanted to sort of, you know, ask you you what you found.
1: Sure. You know, as someone who runs a network of public charter schools, particularly in communities where you have high levels of low-income families, parents who are working even in places like the Bronx where asthma, uh, you know, things that are not an issue elsewhere, are an issue in these communities, all of these factors contribute to something called what's called chronic absenteeism, where, you know, missing at least 10% of the school year. And this has devastating impact on the academic outcomes for kids. So you've already got that going on for vulnerable populations. But for kids in foster care, you know, whose caregivers are now trying to comply, with systems of, you know, scheduling appointments, something so simple as that. You know, this blog talks about how the system itself, it's called system-induced school absenteeism, where, you know, a parent may have to work, there are appointments that the foster care kids have to have, and the appointments are made during the actual times that parents have to now physically take their kids out of school. And with the frequency of these events, guess what? It it exacerbates an already existing problem in terms of absenteeism. And it's just another, it's one of these very subtle but important examples of systems that are supposed to be child-centered, but actually make decisions based on the convenience of adults, right? So the... You know, if you, if you really want to ensure that kids don't miss school or that you don't exacerbate an absenteeism problem, maybe it would make much more sense to set these appointments that require kids' presence to be much later in the day or, heaven forbid, on the weekends. But the, the whole idea is you you think about systems or you schedule appointments on days where there are school holidays already designed. You know, these are tough challenges to solve. But if you start with the premise of how do we solve a child-centered
0: yeah, that's, problem? That's really what we what we want to be getting at is this is a system that is designed to help a child and we need to start there. So with that in mind, I, I was reading the story in the Washington Post a few days ago about a judge in New Orleans named Ernestine Gray, who's been on the bench for quite some time. She has single-handedly decided that we are removing too many kids from their homes and has brought down the rate of foster care in New Orleans by about 75 percent, which a lot of people are cheering. They think this is great news. The only problem, I think, is that we don't really know what the results are. She has an attitude that the primary goal really should be to keep kids, even if they have been reported for in, in multiple cases of, of severe neglect in their homes, with their biological families. And and her goal seems to be to sort of do that even if, even if it puts the kids in danger, frankly. So there was a Washington Post article about this, but full disclosure, I wrote a long piece for Real Clear Investigations about this same judge a few months ago. I was really struck by a couple of things as I was writing the story. The first thing is that she told me, almost bragged about it, that when she is the judge on duty at night, you know, if if a, if a social worker has to call to do an emergency removal of a child, she gets fewer calls than the other judges do because the social workers know that she is essentially not inclined to remove the kid. So even if you think, you know, it would be useful to... Offer give more scrutiny to some of these cases and not remove as many children. The idea that we're not even having a hearing for these children, or that a judge is not even considering these issues, is certainly a concern. The other thing that struck me when I talked to you know the people who are running the child welfare system in Louisiana is they're very open that a lot of what is driving Judge Gray's work is race. She thinks too many black children are being removed in particular and doesn't like to see the disparate racial impact, everybody's favorite phrase these days, and thinks that too many black children are being removed. And so a lot of her policy is is geared toward fixing that racial disparity. To me, that is actually um, she's very explicit about it. But what I have found is that is a lot of what is driving child welfare policy these days.
1: Yeah, what's interesting about that example, you know, you started with the fact that there's this metric, you know, the, the reduction in the number of kids that are removed to, out of their their homes or you know placed in foster care, and it's celebrated. And it is oftentimes these kinds of blanket metrics that, if you just look at that, you might think, oh that's fantastic. That's good news. But when you go underneath and say, well, actually, what are the situations that kids are now actually being left in or brought back into, it could be quite chaotic and quite a harm to the child. So again, I'm sure this judge might feel that she has, you know, great intentions. But when you use metrics like that, simple metrics like that, you tend to mask the real impact on children, the parallel in the public education world is high school graduation rates right so there's been a huge movement over the number of years to increase high school graduation rates and guess what rates have <laughs> magic mag- magically <laughs> increased over the last decade and one could sit back and celebrate that and adults pat themselves on the back but then you look at the actual data and you see that the graduates who are now coming out of high school if they are going to college when they do go to college the level of remediation that is required. I mean, it's millions of dollars of kids who now are entering community college or college unprepared to do basic reading at math at a college level. They're now forced to take non-credit-bearing courses because they're not yet ready. They often, th- they're paying for they're that. Paying tuition, for They're paying, it. paying sure, tuition yeah. for it. And they end up dropping out. And guess what? Now they have debt, no degree. And a lot of that stems from the fact that they didn't get a great education in their K-12 system. And yet adults are patting themselves on the back because high school graduation rates as the singular metric was a thing that was lauded. So I think this, the example of Judge Gray are just great examples, again, of you know, if we're really being child-centered, let's not identify metrics in which we measure performance in ways that we're sort of celebrating the effort of adults, when in fact, the real story is that we're harming kids.
0: Right. And this is true, you know, generally, I think in the foster care system, a lot of times we're measuring the wrong things. Even the number of kids in foster care, I mean, you that's often a headline, you know, the federal government, the number of kids in foster care just went down by 3,000 kids for the first time in in a number of years. And you know, people were celebrating this, but frankly, we don't know if that's a good thing. Maybe there are not enough kids in foster care at all. Maybe there there are kids who are being left in dangerous situations in their homes and they should be removed. So we need to be focused on things like maltreatment and, you know, abuse cases and things like that, like actual reports of real things happening to kids, not just measuring the decisions that are made by adults.
1: Yeah. And, you know, here's where we can have some empathy for workers because this is hard work. You know, this is social workers, you know, have to take this on. So, you know, when you are thinking about these systems where you, we can't just have these blanket rules, we really have to investigate each situation to determine- oh, I see that, you know, this child is in this family, but family reunification is so important that we're going to leave the kid there. It takes dedicated and trained social workers to be able to investigate in such a way that you actually make the best decision for kids. You know, you mentioned Judge Gray. Part of her motivation is that she doesn't like to see the number of black children being removed from their homes. Well, the National Association of Black Social Workers, you know, since 19, I think, 72, has had their official statement that they generally oppose transracial adoption because they essentially believe that the identity of a black child is so important that the very idea of a child being raised by a white parent or a non-black parent is antithetical to that child's identity. But again, what if that child is in a situation that is actually harmful to them and the right decision for that child is to remove them and is to put them into foster care. And we shouldn't look at that as a negative. We should look at that's the real metric is that what's in the best interest of the child.
0: Yeah. And I think that the racial ideology, I think that is driving a lot of the mismanagement in the child welfare system these days. Actually, one of the the kind of first laws that did this was the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed about 40 years ago now, and we're still seeing the harmful effects on children. There was just a tragic story I have here from uh, the Great Falls Tribune, Montana, of a child who was suffering from fetal alcohol syndrome, It was uh, brought into a foster home with two white parents who was cared for for years by this family, but an adoption was blocked because the tribe said that what this child is really missing from his life is Indian parents and Indian culture. And by the way, these white parents, of course, made every effort to, to offer the child access to Indian culture and bring them to cultural events and everything. But unfortunately, the child was taken away from them to be put with an Indian family. These Indian parents did not happen to be qualified. They were actually both felons. And unfortunately, the child died in in very tragic circumstances that it now looks in retrospect like that could have been preventable. And this child was in a, you know, in a stable, you know, happy household and was removed because I think, you know, adults had thoughts about the importance of culture. But were these, you know, really, was this decision really in the best interest of the child?
1: And, you know, what's what's just further tragedy of this tragic situation is not only what happened to this child, but think about the chilling effect of prospective parents who would be interested in adopting, you know, Native American children. And they see this story and they say, oh my gosh, if these parents that seem to provide a stable, loving home were treated in this way, why in the world would I go and volunteer myself to do this? And so... Just think about the impact it has on sort of corroding this inherent desire that many would-be parents would love to have to take in in children who are in very vulnerable situations, but are actually hearing the message that you're not wanted. That is a tragedy upon tragedy.
0: Yeah, the ripple effects here on the system of our attitudes toward well-meaning people who want to take care of vulnerable children is a real problem and it extends far beyond the system and the people who are actually paid to help these children. Thanks so much for joining us today for this episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley.
1: And Ian Rowe.
0: We're with the American Enterprise Institute, and you can hear episodes of this podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.